You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an Emeritus Fellow in the Green Templeton College at the University of Oxford, as well as a visiting professor of political economy at King's College London. Holding a PhD from the University of Oslo, his latest book is titled How Democracies Live, Power, Statecraft, and Freedom in Modern Societies. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Stein Bringen. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Well, I am a Norwegian and British political scientist, and I have a background in um, academic research and government service and in journalism. I've um, uh, written on a range of subjects from poverty and inequality to government in Britain and in other countries. Um, I have uh, looked, studied, the transition of the, from authoritarianism to democracy in Korea, written about the Scandinavian welfare state, studied and written about the Chinese political system in great detail, and now published this final book on how democracies live, which is about the situation of contemporary democracies in mainly the Western world. Okay. Um, yeah. So your latest book is titled How Democracies Live, Power, Statecraft, and Freedom in Modern Societies. So I wanted to start by discussing some of the reforms you propose for the House of Commons. You talk about abolishing the leader of the House and replacing it with a committee of speakers, as well as pre-legislation, scrutiny, and select committees. So Dr. Rankin, can you please tell us a bit about these proposed reforms, the existing issues that they resolve, um, and why you believe they're necessary? Well, I pay a lot of attention to both the British and the American cases, and in both those cases, the ability of the legislatures, Parliament in Britain and Congress in America, to do its job in the democratic system. And those institutions are under challenge, um, and I propose various ways in which they can improve themselves. In the British case, I think that the House of Commons should take control of its own agenda. Now, the British Constitution is supposedly built around the idea of the supremacy of Parliament, but that Parliament is not even in control of its own agenda. Its agenda is set for it by the government, and Parliament can do little more than uh, work on the proposals that the government puts to it under the government's timetable. So I would like Parliament to do much more work on legislature so that we get better lawmaking and better government in this country. And to that in interest, I think Parliament should take control of its agenda, not be remain as it is now a servant of the government, but take control of itself. I think uh, that should be done in a committee of speakers, which is then in charge of government 
business, uh, of parliamentary business, and with rules that force parliament to work very carefully on scrutinizing ahead of time the legislation that passes through it. Um, it's too much to say today that parliament is a rubber stamp legislature, but it isn't far from that. It needs to work much more on the quality of legislation and thereby the quality of government. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so some interesting things there. Um, I think even, even in the American case, um, with, with Congress, it's, it's still going to be the, the, the house that, sorry, the party that has the majority, um, in the house of representatives or the Senate that's going to have the ability to, to set the agenda. And I think in the, the British case with the parliament, it's the majority party or the coalition that the leader of the government, um, that that has the ability to to sort of set the agenda. Um, so, can you tell us a bit more about the mechanics of how that that might work? Um, if we were to have the, these select committees as well as the committee of speakers that were setting the agenda, I mean, anything that that didn't have the support of the majority party would still fail to pass um, Parliament and, and wouldn't become law anyway. Um, so, why not just have the government set the agenda? Well, that's like saying we don't need a legislature; we can just leave it to the government. Now, the government in Britain has it too easy. It can put to Parliament just about anything it wants, and if it has a majority, count on it being passed through. And as a result, we get a lot of very bad legislation. Uh, I want controls on that. I want Parliament to force itself to work more carefully on the legislation it, uh, uh, it takes through so that we get better laws. I mean, laws in this country are a nightmare. And uh, they are not carefully enough worked on and carefully enough prepared. Uh, the House of Commons has lots of capacity, 650 members. Most of those members have virtually nothing to do in Westminster except sitting, waiting to vote. And there's much more work than the, that could be done so as to have better lawmaking. Now, this is all quite technical, but these are changes that would lift Britain forward to better government. Well, the line of re reasoning that you, you laid out there um, is that there's too, too much uh, bad legislation that isn't you know fully considered, that isn't thoroughly debated. Um, that, that almost sounds like the exact same line of reasoning we hear in the United States um, when people people talk about what would happen if we got rid of the filibuster. So there's, uh, I'm sure you're aware, a, a, a huge push um, in the U.S. right now um, if, for Congress or specifically the Senate, the upper house um, of the legislature to, to remove the the filibuster um especially from the democratic party um and you know the the opponents of that basically argue the exact same thing you did that it would you know if you could pass anything with a majority it would lead to a lot of poorly considered legislation um the, and it would basically you know eliminate any any you know by bipartisan cooperation um so I, I would be interested to get get your thoughts on the the filibuster and the extent to which it would solve that the same sorts of issues that um, you, you talk about? Well, the filibuster in the Senate should be removed because that is a mechanism by which a minority can prevent legislation. But in my proposal for the British Parliament, there will be very strict rules about how 
the House of Commons has to work on lawmaking to improve the quality. It couldn't any longer just snap pass through legislation. There would have to be careful procedure. Uh, there would be bills would be introduced by the government. Those bills would be subject to careful scrutiny in select committees, not in debate in on the floor, but in select committees. And the select committees would have to return to the House of Commons with a report in writing where it recommends what it thinks Parliament should adopt and would have to justify in writing why it recommends as it does, such as in uh, careful considerations of administrative, economic, and constitutional consequences. So my proposal is for very careful procedure, uh, but not for an arrangement whereby a minority can block legislation. Uh, now, in the American case, the big problem for Congress is the Supreme Court, uh, which has usurped much more power uh, than it is given in the Constitution, and that is undermining Congress. Uh, the filibuster in the Senate is a problem, but the big problem for the American Congress is the disruptive power of the Supreme Court. I think, yeah, that's that's an interesting conversation because I think some one of the things that people often mistake about um, the Supreme Court or, or even Congress um, is is the job that it's actually given. So um, the the Supreme Court, um, you know, is it, it has the power of judicial review. I think a, a lot of independent judiciaries have that um, around the world. Um, the the extent to which you know that's actually enforced is it varies, but um, yeah. So the Supreme Court basically makes judgments about. Um, you know, whether or not a, a law passed by Congress is constitutional. And I think there's also a, a bit of a cultural difference between the way Congress is set up um, in the United States and the way Parliament operates in, in the UK. Um, so the UK has parliamentary sovereignty, um, whereas the, the United States, I mean, it's also Parliament um, is also, you know, uh, runs under a unitary system. The United States is, is federal. Um, and so they have multiple state governments where the Supreme Court doesn't, you know, really have much, if any, authority besides, um, you know, just applying the Constitution, make sh making sure that states don't violate the Constitution. Um, the way Congress came about um, in, in the Constitutional um, Convention, um, you know, after the, the Articles of Con Confederation, um, they, they were too weak. And so Congress was given very specific powers. For example, the Commerce Clause, the ability to regulate interstate commerce, the ability to make, you know, treaties with, negotiate treaties with um, foreign countries. Um, those sorts of things. So it was given very limited, very particular powers, um, and the majority of the the um, decision making power, um, uh, you know, anything on the local level, all of that was reserved constitutionally back to the states in the ninth and tenth amendments. Um, so, in what way do you think the the Supreme Court has, has usurped um, power beyond what it was given in the in the Constitution? And do you think that that um, you know is is worse? Or better than the situation in the UK, where Parliament has all, you know, Parliament is sovereign and, and can't be overruled by Supreme Court? Well, also in Britain, Parliament can be overruled by the Supreme Court. But there is a very careful culture in the British Supreme Court that it is extremely reluctant to exercise 
its um, uh, power to override parliaments. In the United States, step by step, the culture has changed so that the Supreme Court is not careful. Um, the, um, um, the problem with the Supreme Court in America is not its leaning, whether it is conservative or liberal. Americans are very uh, excited about that, but that is not the problem. The big problem is that it is too activist, too eager to intervene. There isn't the culture of judicial restraint which would make for a, a careful oversight of legislation from the Supreme Court. Now that change has happened step by step and has now gone very far. Now my recommendation for the Americans is that the Supreme Court is extended with an additional uh, uh, justice so that there would be 10 and it would then be required to have a six to four majority, both for accepting an appeal and for judgments. Now that would restrain the Supreme Court. It wouldn't eliminate its control, its oversight, but it would restrain the Supreme Court. And the American Supreme Court needs to restrain itself. It has become too activist, too eager to intervene, too eager to take control. Do you think that um, helps to prevent the sort of bad legislation situation you talked about in, in Britain? Uh, in, in the case of the United States, it would help to reestablish a careful balance of checks and balances. Now, that's a very delicate situation, and the Supreme Court has disturbed that balance by usurping too much power for itself. And um, that is a big problem for Congress, and it's a big problem for governability. So I'm all in favor of judicial oversight, but it needs to be exercised with restraints. And in the case of the United States, that culture of restraint, which makes for good, productive judicial oversight, has been crushed. And something should be done to reestablish it. And my suggestion is to make it more difficult for the Supreme Court to be as activist as it is now inclined to be. Okay. Um, so you also mentioned how, um, for the reforms you mentioned earlier for the House of Commons, um, that these are just the ones that you believe are actually politically viable um, and, and not the ones that you would actually prefer to see. Um, so if you had full control and could reform the House of Commons however you'd like, um, I mean, you could, you could implement any reforms regardless of the political viability, what would you change? Well, the first thing is the, the, the reform I have suggested, that is to change the procedure of lawmaking in the House of Commons. Um, that in itself is a technical, small, moderate reform, which would matter a lot. So that is my first suggestion. But I would also make uh, other suggestions if um, I had the ability to think they could be brought through. 
And one is that I would change the electoral system so that we had proportional representation, elections by proportional representation in this country, and not the first um, past the post system that we now have. So I would change the election system in this country also. Um, I would also, uh, both in the American and the British case, change the way we pay for politics. The power of money has become much too strong and also should be reined in. So I would make proposals, I would make suggestions for how we can democratize the way we pay for money in order to put more influence into the hand of citizens and voters. Okay, um, so you also talk about the House of Lords, and despite considering it a bizarre institution, you believe that it's doing its job. Um, however, the majority of Britons oppose the institution on the grounds that it is undemocratic. Now, in response, you've stated that you are not concerned with how democratic an institution is because we don't have any metric by which to measure that. Um, however, to the extent that the House of Lords is unelected, um, they have virtually no public accountability, they possess hereditary seats, I think it's safe to say that it is a, a less democratic institution than the House of Commons. I mean, in the same way, for example, we can say that the UK is more democratic than North Korea. Um, despite the lack of a metric by which to measure exactly how democratic an institution is. Um, so, Dr. Ringen, can you tell us a bit about why you do not oppose the House of Lords um, on the grounds that it's undemocratic especially, and what purpose you believe it's serving? Well, it serves to um, exercise a good deal of the kind of scrutiny over the legislative procedure that I think the House of Commons should take on. So it does its job in that respect. Of course, it's, it's, uh, it's an absurd institution. But the priority in the British case is to improve the way the House of Commons does its job. Um, uh, you know, um, I, I wouldn't stand on the barricades and defend the strange institution of the House of Lords in the British Parliament. But it just isn't the priority. The priority is to get the House of Commons, the, the House of Elected Representatives, to work effectively. Uh, and, uh, and, and I would like to give my voice to that priority more than to a debate about the aesthetics of the House of Commons. Sorry, about the House of Lords. Okay, um, so now switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk to you about some of the other essays in the book, starting with the essay on poverty, in which you treat poverty as a moral issue which must be eradicated. So in my opinion, as long as socioeconomic mobility is high, poverty alone is not a moral issue because it is reflective of behavior. So for example, a Brookings Institute study found that virtually everybody that doesn't drop out of secondary school doesn't have a baby out of wedlock before 21 and gets a job, will not live in poverty. So with the exception of people with some kind of disability, poverty in the developed world is um, almost always reflective of some sort of poor decision making. Um, so in the same way, if I kill someone, I go to jail. If I make poor life decisions, my financial situation will reflect that. So from an economic standpoint, the threat of poverty is what makes me need to get up and go to work in the morning. If I don't generate value for society, I don't eat. 
if I am able to work and choose not to, the fact that I will find myself in poverty shouldn't be considered an issue, or at least in my opinion. Um, so with that said, Dr. Ringan, I wanted to ask you to present your argument to the contrary that you discuss in the book for why poverty is a moral issue that must be eradicated. Well, you know, I'm a Scandinavian social democrat, and I wouldn't, uh, by instinct, think in those terms. Uh, poverty has been with us um, for centuries in the form of oppressive living conditions for um, larger or smaller parts of the population. And I think we should just be generous enough to say that we shouldn't have a society in which some of the people live in oppressive conditions. Um, now, with my Scandinavian reference, I can say that you know, in, in those countries, poverty has been eliminated. There aren't poor people, there aren't children who live up in poverty in those countries. There are families who have less, but there aren't children who grow up in extreme want. And those societies happen to be also the economically most productive anywhere in the world, where people generally enjoy a higher standard of living than anywhere else. So it works very well to protect the population from uh, having to live in oppressive situations. It's a matter of generosity. It's possible. Now, uh, so that can be done. I think it should be done. And it's economically viable. Okay, um, so a couple things. Um, so you, you talked about um, how, how Scandinavia has, has eliminated poverty or at least extreme um, poverty. Um, so I think, and, and has, you know, simultaneously become the, the most productive society. I think, you know, there's quite a few other variables that we could probably mention, uh, especially in Norway, you know, there's quite a lot of oil wealth, it's very strong institutions, um, you know, a, a lot of other factors that probably come into play um, in, in, you know, making Scandinavian countries some of the most productive. Um, at, at the same time, I think a, a couple of the things um, you mentioned that we should be generous enough. Um, so I, I think w one point that that might miss, um, you know, if I choose not to go to work, do I, am I entitled to the value that somebody else produces? So if I I want to sit in my bed and watch TV all day. Um, and my neighbor gets up in the morning and he goes to work. Um, I'm going to live in poverty and he's going to be pretty well off. But does that mean that I am entitled to some of the value that he's producing um, if I'm able to work and, and don't? Well, there are some people who suggest that, uh, which goes under the name of a universal uh, basic income. I don't do that. I think that is a ridiculous suggestion. I don't think anyone should be entitled to sit on the sofa at home and not go to work. Um, uh, uh, and I don't think that um, uh, that situation should be protected. Uh, now, this again depends a lot on, on culture. Again, if I think of my Scandinavian experience, this is not a problem. This is, there, 
we don't have a problem of people just sitting at home and not going to work. In, in, in fact, people go to work massively, want to go to work, and they want to participate. Um, so I think that that's um, that's really a, a non-problem, not a practical problem. This is an esoteric uh, example, I think. It works very well. Um, we are generous, uh, people benefit from it, and they contribute. By and large, that works really well. Yeah. Now, maybe I should ask or add on this poverty issue that my inspiration here is neoclassical economics. It's the, the founding work in neoclassical economics by the British economist Alfred Marshall in a book called Principles of Economics, published in 1890. Now, he started his whole enterprise on modern economics with the proposition that poverty should be eliminated. Later, unfortunately, economists have forgotten that part of his premise and have adopted other things from his work, but they have forgotten the moral core of it. That is that we as a people have an obligation to see to it that no one um, is left to live in a situation of oppressive want. We have a moral responsibility to do that. That is, the, that is said Alfred Marshall, the purpose of economics, the, the, the final moral purpose of economics is that people are enabled to live well and that no one should live so poorly that they are not included in that mainstream. Now that was the basic premise on which neoclassical economics was born. And it's a great shame that the economists have later forgotten about that premise. Well, I mean, uh, a couple things there. Um, again, and I, I think this is interesting sort of to get into because it's a very valuable conversation to be had. Um, I, I think um, you, you sort of shot down the sit on the sofa and, and watch TV all day um, example. And I, and I do agree that is that is an esoteric um, example. Um, but again, going back to sort of the, the socioeconomic mobility um, issue, the, the same Brookings Institute study I, I cited, you know, it's been widely confirmed, um, which is that if, if people in a society in the developed world, you know, the United States, the UK, um, if people make you know, basic good life decisions. Um, for example, don't drop out of school, don't have kids, um, as, as teenagers, basically, um, out of wedlock, um, you know, get a job. And in these countries, there are millions of unfulfilled jobs and there always have been. Um, so, uh, you know, some make some basic, um, good life decisions, um, that they will not be living in poverty. So the, the majority of people that do actually live in poverty in, in the UK and the US made some, some of these poor choices. Um, so like I said, um, you know, your poor choice might not be sitting on the sofa and watching TV. It might be having kids out of wedlock. It might be dropping out of school. It might be refusing to 
take a job or, you know, any, any number of things. Um, it might be some sort of, um, alcohol abuse, you, all, all sorts of things. Um, poor, the, the results of poor life decisions more often than not that lead to, lead to poverty. Um, and then the second thing you mentioned there is, is sort of the neoclassical economics perspective. Um, I think you, you mentioned a book that was written in the late 19th century. Um, since then, the, the sort of, um, free market innovation, um, you know, that, that neoclassical economic economists advocated for, um, sort of Hayek and, and Friedman and, and, and all those thinkers, um, along those lines talked about, you know, reducing regulation, um, reducing taxation, um, you know, creating space where innovators could thrive, um, and, and those sorts of things that lifted billions of people out of poverty worldwide. You know, all, all of the inventions that we have today, a poor person's life today, um, you know, just because of medical advancements, you'd rather be the, you know, a, a poor person in the UK or the US today than the richest person um, on earth in, in, in even the developed um, world in, in the 1870s, right before medical advancements. You didn't even know if your child was going to live. You didn't have any of these things that, that you have today. And, and a lot of that is because the same, same line of reasoning. And so I think the the outgrowth of neoclassical economics and the theories that they proposed has been to lift um, you know, people out of extreme poverty, the extreme poverty, um, you, you know, to the point where people are dying of starvation is virtually non-existent in, in the developed world today. So I, I think, um, you know, when you say we've, we've sort of lost touch, uh, with, with those ideals, um, that, that seems sort of hard to, to see how, how that plays out given the last 150 years or so of, of economic development. But, but if you, if you look at what I have, the way I have, discussed and treated poverty, it, it is all done within the context of a strict work ethic. You know, I start by saying there has to be, if there's going to be no poverty, there has to be um, enough eco- uh, in, uh, income to share, to go around. There has to be economic prosperity. And that, again, depends on there being jobs and on people being willing to take those jobs. So my discussion is entirely within a strict work ethic uh, context. But I add to that also a little bit of generosity, a little bit of sharing. Um, As I say, I'm not in any way in favor of a basic minimum income where people can sit on the sofa and still be guaranteed income. No, it is all within a strict work ethic. But it's a strict worth ethic, ethic combined with a touch of generosity. This was Alfred Marshall's um, um, perspective that there needs to be sharing and a willingness to share. And if we have a little willingness to share, we can have both economic prosperity, we can have good work ethics, and we can have freedom from oppressive poverty. Seems to me a pretty good prospect and a prospect we should wish for and work for. Okay. Um, yeah, makes sense. Um, especially when you frame it in, in that context of, of a strict worth work ethic, because I think that takes away, um, you know, some of the other, um, 
situations that that might arise. And, and of course, if if any, if everyone is willing to work, um, and I think that is the closest we've gotten to that is in Scandinavia, then of course um, poverty will will be you know at, at negligible levels. Um, I think even in the U.S., the U.K. right now, um, there are millions of unfulfilled jobs, and and anybody willing to there, there are shortages all over the place in every industry, many of which don't require any skills, and anybody willing to work full time will not be living at the poverty level. You know, even at the minimum wage, which in the United States is, is extremely low, um, you still won't be at the poverty level working 40 hours a week. Well, it depends a bit on how many children they have. And, you know, the, the problem of poverty is mainly a problem that afflicts children. And children are not responsible for their parents doing or misdoing. Um, so, you know, it's uh, you're absolutely right that people who work, by and large, can escape poverty. But it depends on the family, depends on the number of children, and children are innocent of their parents' um, wise or unwise decisions. Of course, and I think there would, you know, seldom be anybody, regardless of political bent, that would would advocate, you know, to let to let children starve. Um, you know, I, I I'm sure there is there there's no mainstream um, perspective that that wouldn't advocate for at least some sort of of welfare um, state in place to make sure that children can be educated um, and, and can be given the basic necessities at, at the very least. So um, anyway, um, to, to finish up, that was those those are all the questions I, I have for you today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Rangan. Thank you very much. It's okay. Um, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.